Our sermon text is Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 26. Galatians 5, 13 through 26. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Through this month of November, we have been exploring the idea of grace, God's grace, this generous, undeserved gift that God gives to God's people. Two weeks ago, we thought about the idea of grace mixed with freedom. Grace means that we are free from the constraints of the law, but we're not just free to be free, we're free to be bound to Jesus. So it's a bit of a paradox. Last week we considered grace and generosity, the the generous nature of God's gift of the Holy Spirit to God's people. God's generous, uh, gracious, uh, how did I say it? Gracious generosity. I was about to say generous graciosity, but that's not a word. I got the words mixed up. Um, Never mind, that reminds me of my, okay, since I'm on the rabbit trail now, it reminds me of my nephew's names, Garrett and Grant. And to this day, I don't understand why you would, the names are so, Garrett, Grant, they're so similar to each other, and I always get them mixed up. Anyway, gracious generosity, something about G's and R's that made me go that direction. Okay, that's fine. God's generous and gracious gift to us, his undeserved mercy 
is the gift of the Holy Spirit, which gives us life. The forgiveness that we have in Christ is followed quickly by this abundant life that that the Holy Spirit brings to us. And Paul's point in this passage today from Galatians 5 is that life in the Spirit is fundamentally different than life without the Spirit. The contrast in this passage is very clear. A contrast is one thing I always look for in, in Scripture as I'm preparing to preach. Where is the tension? Where is the conflict? And, and it's actually very obvious right here. He says it out loud. The, the way of the flesh or the sinful nature, the human nature, is in conflict with the way of spirit. It's not to say that human beings are bad, but rather that our perspective, our human perspective, is necessarily limited and focused usually on ourselves. Left to our own devices, we will align our ethical principles with our own human desires. This is something we learned from the very earliest of ages. When we were each born and raised, we, were, we, we had this innate desire to uh, get our needs met. And so we cried out for the bottle or we cried out for the diaper to be changed or whatever it might have been. We, we make choices based on what we think is good for ourselves. But as we grow and as we develop and mature into childhood and teenage years and to adulthood, we... we uh, have the influence of many people to help us uh, to help us make adjustments to how we make our desires uh, fulfilled, and so we turn to our parents and we turn to our teachers and we turn to our church community or other role models uh, to to shift those impulses a bit so that we 're not just doing what is good for us. We start to consider what is good for others for the community for the neighbor for stranger, for the planet, something bigger than just myself. Generation after generation, we have to keep teaching these lessons to the next crew of people that come into being. We have to keep looking for positive influences around us so that we can continue to be uh, have our horizons broadened to show compassion to those around us. And we need to provide positive influences to those who will follow us. That's why nearly all religions in the world, not just Christianity, but religion you can think of will have some sort of ethical principles, some sort of uh, way of life that makes sense of things and helps people to live well, to be decent people. These positive influences that we have are crucial for our development, even as we are adults. Because our lower instincts are always just below the surface, ready to rear their ugly heads. It's not natural or normal for us to live the way of the Spirit on our own or under our own power. It's much more natural for us to live the way of the flesh, the way of the human nature. So to describe this human nature, Paul lists several acts of the sinful nature here. There are a handful of these kinds of lists in the New Testament, and none of them are meant to be uh, exhaustive or complete, as if that's all of the stuff that you do that's not good. (laughs) These are examples. Uh, Paul even says, and the like, at the end of this, because he just ran out of ideas and wanted to move on. 
when we look at lists of, of negative things, things that are, that are of the human nature, it's easy for us, and this is part of our human nature, to identify those things in other people. Oh, I know somebody who's been sexually immoral, or I know someone who is uh, drunk, uh, or I know someone who is uh, living in a, a fit of rage all the time. Um, it's harder for us to see that in ourselves. This is why Jesus told the parable once upon a time of the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? Where two men were going to pray and the, the Pharisee, who was upright and moral and righteous and observed the law, lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, I thank God that I am not like this tax collector man over here. I, I do all of these good things. I tithe, I worship, I do everything I'm supposed to do, and I'm not like him. It's much easier for us to identify these things of the sinful nature in other people. Uh, Jesus didn't think too kindly of that Pharisee that he was imagining. Uh, one of those two men went home justified that day, and it was not the Pharisee. It was the one who said, have mercy on me, O God, I am a sinner. So the point of lists like these that we have in Galatians 5 is to help us identify these impulses in ourselves. To see how we are encouraged to do these kinds of things by the world around us. To see how our basic desires might lead us down these paths. We might not all struggle with witchcraft or fits of rage, but let me ask you this. Do we struggle with any of these things? Are we encouraged by the world around us toward any of these things? Hatred? Discord? Jealousy? Selfish ambition? Envy? Idolatry? Dissensions? Factions? Is there anything going on in the world today that might prompt in us a desire to divide the world into us versus them factions and to approve of those that are like us and to uh, love those that are like us and to hate those that are like them? Well, hate is too strong of a word. We don't hate. Um, we dislike. We separate from. We consider them to be wrong. They, we don't want to have anything to do with them. We feel condescension toward them. We feel attacked by them, maybe. Is there anything going on in the world today that might move us in that direction? I'll give you a hint. Turn on any news channel for five seconds and you'll have the answer. Look at any news website and the top story will tell you exactly that. We are living with factions. And we've decided that that's okay. Our basic instincts love dissensions and factions. We are not naturally good at loving our neighbors as ourselves. This is why living according to the Spirit of God is so important for us. When we live according to the Spirit, rather than according to our human nature, our lives will be transformed. Our morals and ethics will shift. We will serve each other and sacrifice ourselves for each other. The church is a perfect training ground for that way of life for living according to the Spirit. We're a group of people that are all gathered together and 
apparently we all believe in Jesus, or at least that's the idea. We connect to each other because of our common faith in Jesus. But I guarantee you that in any church of any size, there are differences of opinion. There are differing perspectives. We don't all believe the same things about what life should be like. And that's okay. What connects us is stronger than what divides us. There is room for variation within the church on matters that are not extremely, utterly, universally important. We are connected to each other through that that is universally important, and that is Jesus. We're connected to each other through our faith in Christ. And because there are various opinions and beliefs within the church, we have the opportunity to practice loving our neighbors as ourselves. If we can't love our neighbors as ourselves here in the church, then we have no hope of loving our neighbors as ourselves outside of the church. And if you think of it from a different perspective, if you choose to belong to a church only because everyone believes the same thing, because they're exactly like you, then you're really just cheating yourself of the opportunity to learn how to love your neighbor as yourself in the context of safe relationships, which a church should provide. It's not easy to love your neighbor as yourself. It's risky. It's costly. It means that you have to step out of your comfort zone and see your neighbor as a real person, a person who is connected to you. There are a couple of ways of thinking about this command from the Old Testament, quoted here, quoted by Jesus, um, to love your neighbor as yourself. A couple of ways of thinking about it. The more common way, I think, is to consider it as this. Um, love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. You love yourself with a great sense of immediacy and urgency. If there's something wrong with you, you're going to get it fixed because you love yourself. Um, if you're bleeding, you're going to put a Band-Aid on it. So you, when you see someone else bleeding, you should put a Band-Aid on them. That's a a really elementary kind of example, but that's the idea. We love our neighbors in the same way that we love ourselves. But a deeper way to read this command, to love your neighbor as yourself, is to read it this way. Love your neighbor as an extension of yourself. Love your neighbor as a person who is connected to you. Love your neighbor as yourself. You love your neighbor because you are deeply connected to your neighbor. Jesus told a parable about this too. Uh, The parable of the Good Samaritan. It's found in Luke 10. One of the teachers of the law comes to Jesus and he explains that he knows, the teacher of the law knows, that it's important to obey this Old Testament command, love your neighbor as yourself. Eternal life depends on it, he says. And Jesus says, you know, you're right, that's not bad. I might have said that somewhere else before. Um, Different Gospels have those words in Jesus' mouth. Here they're in the teacher's mouth. That's fine. Um, But then the teacher tries to justify himself, the text says. And so he asks Jesus, who's my neighbor? (laughs) In other words, can I make the categories so that I can be neighborly to the person that I want to be a neighbor to, or, or it, can, I, can I leave some people out? And Jesus tells this story. A man is going from town to town, Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's beaten up, robbed, and left on the side of the road. 
A priest walks by. A Levite, a church worker, walks by. Two very religious people that should love their neighbors as themselves walk right on by. They even pass to the other side of the road so they don't come into contact with the uncleanness of what's going on there. But then a Samaritan shows up. And the word has lost meaning to us. We don't understand Samaritan. It's, um, he is an other. The Samaritan is someone who is not like us. So fill in the blank. He is someone that should have no business dealing with a Jewish person who's left, left hurting on the side of the road. But this Samaritan truly saw this man, this injured man, as a real human being with real needs. Jesus says that the Samaritan took pity on him. And the word uh, says that his guts churned. It's the visceral kind of connection that you feel when you, are, you realize you are connected to this person that you're in front of, that you're confronting, that you're in the presence of. This Samaritan had this visceral connection to the man who was beaten on the side of the road. And so he did something about it. He bandaged his wounds He picked him up, took him to a safe place, paid for all of his needs. And so Jesus then concludes the story by asking brilliantly, not that person was a neighbor or, you know, who who was the neighbor to this? Uh, He he says, "Who, who did the work of being the neighbor? Who was a neighbor to this man? It's not about uh, deciding who my neighbor is, but who will you be a neighbor to? And the teacher of the law responds, well, the one who showed mercy to him. Mercy. There's that word again. Jesus says, go and do likewise. Mercy is connected to the idea of grace, right? Grace is God's generous gift of an undeserved uh, blessing, an undeserved act of mercy. Grace and mercy are intertwined with each other. We show mercy to our neighbors because God has shown mercy To us. We show mercy to our neighbors so that we are imitating God. Because God has shown mercy to us, we show mercy to each other. Because God has loved us, we show love to our neighbors. We are simply imitating God when we are loving our neighbors as ourselves. God has graciously granted us freedom in Christ. God has generously given us the very Spirit of God. And our best response to the freedom we have in Christ and the generous gift of God's Spirit is to walk with the Spirit. That's the language Paul uses here. Walk with the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. That last phrase has the language of marching, as if you're marching in military formation. Keep in step with the Spirit. Where the Spirit leads, we follow. What the Spirit is doing, we get in line with. So that our, uh, our, our pace and our stride, we modify so that our footsteps fall in the footprints that the Spirit makes in this world. What kind of life does that look like? Well, of course, it looks like the fruit of the Spirit. And dozens and dozens of sermons and Bible studies have been written about these nine things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I'll say this about these just briefly. 
if you think about those nine as a unit, they're not just internal principles that you're trying to adopt within yourself to make you a better person. If I had more love, I would be a better person. If I had more joy, I want to have more joy in my life. I want to have more peace. It's not just internal. They are relational terms. To love is a relational act. To have peace, to create peace, requires some kind of a relationship. To be a faithful person means you need to be faithful to a person that is in your world. These are relational terms. So the fruit of the Spirit are ways to act out the command, love your neighbor as yourself. But life in the Spirit is more than just having these good things. Let's not forget that there's a list of acts of the spirit of the human flesh that we need to do away with. Life in the Spirit of God includes pursuing the fruit of the Spirit, yes, but also continually relieving ways of the flesh. Uh, Paul uses the, the phrase, crucifying the sinful nature which is a pretty strong phrase when you stop to think about it. Crucifying is what happened to Jesus. And so we're imitating Jesus in this way by putting to death that sinful nature within ourselves. It means letting go of the jealousy and the factions and the impurity and the idolatry and all of the rest of these things every single time they creep up within us, letting them go. Those passions, those desires that tempt us, uh, those passions and desires tempt us to move out of step with the Spirit of God. So every time those desires arise within us, we have to let them go and allow God to replace them with the fruit of the Spirit. Since we live by the Spirit, or to use a different phrase, since we are driven by the wind, Remember that from our 75th anniversary last year? It's the same idea. Since we are moved by God's Spirit, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So your homework this week is to examine the principles that motivate you. What do you live by? If somebody asked you to come up with a list of five things Five words, just to say individual words. Five words that motivated you. What would those five words be? What would be your driving principles? And then watch yourself to see if you actually live by them. Because sometimes we have an idealized version of what actually motivates ourselves. Um, when you turn on the news, when you look at those news websites to see what's happening in the world around you, how do you feel? Do they match those principles that you want to live by? When you encounter someone who is different from you in some significant way, how do you respond? When you see a need in someone near you, uh, what is evoked within you? How do your reactions align with those principles that you say you have? And how do those principles that you have align with the fruit of the Spirit? See if you can come up with a list of five things that really motivate you and and watch to see if those actually are motivating you. I hope they are. And then in your interactions with other people this week, imitate Jesus. 
That's really the call every Sunday for us to imitate Jesus. The reason we gather on Sunday mornings is because Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. And so it's all really about Jesus. And if we're not imitating Jesus, then we're really just wasting our time. So in your relationships with others, imitate Jesus, which means release anything that, that would resemble an act of the sinful nature. When you see those things crop up within yourself, just release them and allow the Spirit of God to transform you continually so that you will actively love your neighbor as yourself. Would you join me in prayer? God, we give you thanks for this letter that Paul wrote to Christians who are really not that much different from us, but who lived and died so many years before us. We give you thanks that we can read these words and hear your voice through them. I pray that you would heal us of the, of, of the ways of the flesh that we are so addicted to and so uh, enthralled by. Help us to live by the Spirit and to see evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and in each other's lives. And, and help us to, um, to put our faith so completely in you that we are able to let go of those things that would separate us from you and from each other. Help us to be holy and united in your name. We give you thanks for the work that you are doing in us and among us and in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.